everyone. Welcome to our Midtown podcast where we are taking all of your questions from the Embodied series and answering them. This episode, we're talking about gender. Again, I'm here with my friend and colleague, Pastor John Ludovina. Hey, John. Hey, so glad to be here and uh, excited. You know, we didn't know exactly how it was going to work out, but at least for these first two, kind of having enough questions about the sermon to have a whole episode that just becomes supplemental content for that week, that sermon's content. I like that. I like how it worked out. Yeah, and would highly recommend you all check out the show notes. That's where all the resources are going to be. Before we get into any of the specific questions, give me a little bit. How do you see gender in our culture and resources that you find helpful for thinking about gender in a biblical, faithful way? I'm thinking about the stuff that we had on week seven of our Embodied series, um, Genesis of Gender by Abigail Flav Flavali. Flavali. Uh, we've used her a lot in this series, and I think that She's is an a, excellent resource. Yeah, it's accessible and rich. Well, yeah, and I think is. even just before we get into the specific questions, I think it's just it's unfortunate to me that making the claim God made two genders equally in His image with equal value, dignity, and worth but also with observable differentiation. It's unfortunate to me that that is a very controversial statement. Mm-hmm. And it's controversial in multiple directions. Mm-hmm. There are different groups of people who don't like different parts of that. There, there are people who don't like the part that we mentioned differences. There are people who don't like the part that we emphasized equality. And it's both are biblical, both are scriptural. And when you try to pit them against each other, I think you end up with some really flimsy and kind of foolish biblical argumentation. Yeah. But also, it's just they don't have to be pitted against each other. That it's God designed it to work beautifully together, just like He designed the genders to work beautifully together. Yeah, yeah. Let's strive for biblical faithfulness, uh, while acknowledging, yeah, maybe there is stuff from the church's past, even like American evangelicalism, that is kind of messed up. Of course, yeah. And let's not tear the whole thing down. Uh, but let's grapple with what the Scripture says and how we got to where we are. And pursue biblical faithfulness. So, yeah, so. I, I remember, uh, I think it was Matt Chandler, years and years ago, early on in his pastoral ministry, he talked about the, the tendency in culture and in people to swing like a pendulum. And so it's like, we swing, we get really excited about this one idea and we swing that direction for a while. And then someone starts to go, hey, there's some flaws over there. Let's swing all the way back. And it's like, actually, Team Jesus, so much of the time is way steadier than that, way more faithful than that. We don't need to swing super far one direction or the other. We can find that balance, that nuance. It's not centralism of like, there are things Jesus is extreme about, but they stay constant throughout time and throughout culture. They don't swing with the cultural moves that happen. Yeah. So I just think about even in American evangelicalism, there is a lot of like, Men have been sort of the patriarchs, sort of squashing down the other gender, and therefore we should do away with the complementary roles that men and women have. And it's like, I agree with the first statement. I don't think that leads to the second. I think it ought to lead to biblical faithfulness, and let's wrestle with it. And I think that's what a lot of these questions are getting at, which I find helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And even, you know, you get into the history of it, you know, you have different waves of feminism. So I mentioned Abigail Favalli earlier being a, being a self-labeled feminist at one point. I don't know if she would still claim that term. I'm not necessarily saying the term is negative or wrong. I think faithful Christians, biblical Christians could absolutely be wonderful, faithful, excellent 
feminist. The, the issue with feminism becomes when you can't land on a place of equal and different. Uh, uh-oh, now I've got problems. And I, for, sure. for wherever you're coming from, whatever labels you would claim, if, if we can't stand on God-made two genders that are equal in worth, dignity, value, and also have observable differences, I think we're, we're heading towards trouble. Yeah. Well, all of this was not planned for us to talk yeah, about, but I think it's a helpful preface. That's right. Let's get into the questions. All right. Question number one. Does God have a gender? Why do we use male pronouns for God? Does the three-in-one nature of God affect how we refer to him, in air quotes, him? So, John, I'll have you take that one first. How would you answer that? Sure. Yeah. So, I, I love this question because, like we try to do all the time, it's our theology flows from the nature and character of God as he's revealed in the scriptures, and everything about life and practice and everything else starts with God. We want to start with who God is and build out from there. And so... For this question, uh, you know, just the first one, does God have a gender? I land, as I study the scriptures, with like a yes and no answer. And the yes and no part of that answer, which I would say some people might find really frustrating. Yeah, I know. And sure. I, I land, I mean, partially my personality and the way I wrestle things, I land here in a lot of different cases, which I think a lot of people find frustrating. Um, that's okay. I think the scriptures lead me there. I don't land there because I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so my study of the scriptures, what I see is, in Genesis 1, God makes male and female in his image. In his image, he creates both of them. So right away, I've got some picture. In the first chapter of the Bible, I've got some picture of God is bigger than either gender. All that is good of what is male, all that is good of what is female, finds its source in God. Any differentiation we observe at some level find its, finds its root in who God is. So God's bigger than a gender out of Genesis one. And also cover to cover in the scriptures, God chooses to reveal himself to humans with male pronouns, with male images, the image of father, the image of son. When Jesus incarnates and becomes an embodied human, he chooses to be a male embodied human. Um, I don't think we have to just from where we started. I don't think we have to reject either part of that. We can say both God is bigger than gender, but also God chooses to reveal himself in male terms, throughout every bit of what he reveals to us, we don't need to reject that. We can honor that. We can, because we're not trying to pit the genders against each other. We don't think that's God trying to pit the genders against each other. We don't think that's God saying, oh, yeah, males are superior in that regard. No, it's it's none of that. It's just he's chosen that, and we don't need to fight and resist it. He's everything that is good about what it is to be a man. I think about there are a couple passages in the Old Testament where God is described in feminine analogies. Um, Hosea 12, 8, he's described as a mother bear. Deuteronomy 32, 11, and 12 as a mother eagle or a mother hen sort of protecting her children. Yeah, Jesus Jesus uh, refers to that one when he's, he's weeping over Jerusalem. And he yeah. says, oh, how I've longed to gather you up like a mother hen wants to gather up her chicks under her wings. Yeah, so I think that plays into the yes and to the question of the primary way God describes himself, even across the Trinity, so not just God the Father, but is primarily masculine, and yet he is above it to even use, at times, although very rarely, a feminine language. Uh, Think about not only God the Father, God the Son, but even the Holy Spirit, um, the the definite article is is masculine, even though 
spirit tends to be a feminine uh we're getting really dorky here yeah. um nouns in greek are either feminine masculine or neuter so it's kind of like for those of you who have studied spanish and in the spanish sure. language see <laughs> both adjectives and nouns can be feminine or negative depending on if you have the a or the o ending this is, i took three years of high school spanish i'm not muy bien fluent muy muy bien <laughs> Claro, Casey. <laughs> uh, but all that to say, Numa is normally a feminine definite article, and yet whenever the Holy Spirit is mentioned, there's a masculine definite article attached to it. I think for us to see that the primary way God describes himself tends to be masculine, but that is beyond biology when we're talking about God. And the, the other thing, even just, you know, I see, I, I like that we can, we can mention the times where God uses feminine analogies to describe himself because female is good, beautiful. And in those ways, we've talked about this before, the term used for wife in Genesis of helper is a same term used for God and specifically the Holy Spirit frequently, because that's good and beautiful. But even those are, are metaphorical analogies. He never actually refers to himself as a woman, as a female. And so it's just a, it's an interesting thing of we don't need to overemphasize either side. We can land on a yes, no. Why did he do it? He chose to. He's smart. We're supposed to learn from it. I don't know that we have to have an airtight all the way down philosophy of why. Uh, I think we can trust him. Yeah, for sure. Next question. What does it look like for women to depend on men outside of a marriage relationship? Yeah, so I think this question, we saw variations of this question come up because when we were talking about how men and women complement each other, we need each other. I think the marriage and family unit was described primarily like the biological marriage and family and kids and stuff. And here are all the statistics of what happens when you remove one of those components. And so I think we had some pushback. I appreciate the pushback because it lets me know how people are receiving that. People are wrestling with and it. And what we need Nothing to yeah, nuance and wrestle down. If, yeah, I, let's can't, just, if let's... I can't depend on my spouse, that's right. how am I supposed to depend on the other gender? How, how would the statement, men and women need each other, and God designed it that way, how does that apply to me? Yeah. And I think the way we have talked about it is if marriage is a picture of something bigger Jesus's covenant with us, then you could even make a similar argument with biological family. The biological family is a picture of something bigger that the New Testament argues for. I think about Jesus in Matthew 12, when people are like, hey man, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are, they want to talk to you. And Jesus sort of subverts it and says, who are my mother and brothers? Like if you forsake your family, you get a thousand fold or, or something like that. I'm butchering the text, but nice, <laughs> cool. <laughs> but it's that principle of when you place your faith in Jesus, church family, Jesus centered family on mission, if you will, that uh, we get caught up into something bigger where our gender is most fully expressed in our covenant relationship with God and his people. So men and women need each other uh, in the bigger, broader sense uh, when it comes to Jesus and the church. Certainly a a more permanent sense because marriage can be taken away from you. Marriage may or may not ever be a gift that you receive. 
but the the God designed need for men and women to rely on each other, be interwoven with each other. Um, so like a text that comes to mind for me, you know, is first Timothy five, one through two, where he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So there's just this really beautiful description being given here of the entire church family should treat each other like family. And the older men, you should treat like fathers. The older women, you should treat like mothers. The younger men, you should treat like brothers. The younger women, you should treat like sisters. And so for people who are not married, that's a beautiful picture of men and women rely on each other like brothers and sisters would. And, and it is important to know that culturally speaking, the sibling relationship in their day and age was much higher in some ways than I think our culture tends to see it because we're so mobile. We move around. We generally, you know, it's like siblings tend to be people I like as long as we didn't have a really damaging relationship in some way, but not someone I would really think of as like relying on. And in their day and age, that wasn't the case at all. Like siblings were close knit, your security, your support. And so I think that's a really beautiful way for even as a married man, there are women in our church family who I'm not married to, and I want to view them as sisters, and I want to see our gender as being complementary, uh, not the same way that it is for Erica and I in our marriage covenant, but I think there are things I bring to the table that I can help them with from a masculine perspective. There are things they bring to the table that they can help me with from a feminine perspective, and that's good and beautiful and right. And so I do also just want to mention you, because I, I taught that week, and I, I did say, you know, it's when men and women see the good in each other, when they honor the good in God's design, the equality and the dignity, the value, the worth of being stamped with his image, but also the observable differences, I, I don't think it's just the family that benefits. I think countries, societies, governments, organizations, teams, everyone benefits when men and women can see how they relate to each other, how they locked together, how they can mutually serve each other, mutually honor each other, mutually elevate each other. And we all, we all grow when we see it like that. Yeah. I have a book recommendation for us that is a pretty big one for our church and how we think about philosophically church family is the book. When the church was a family by Joseph Hellerman, he goes deep into Greco Roman. Here's how the family structure looked and all the stuff you were saying about yeah. brother and sister sibling relationships were elevated above the marital relationship. Awesome. It's a great book. Yeah. We've referenced yeah. it a lot throughout our years. It's super helpful for how we think about life groups and community. And before we move on from this question, I do think just another thing that I want to spotlight, you know, in this idea of church being family and I have more so dealt with, uh, women, so like single moms or a grandma who has kids living with her and she's a single woman and they're kind of going, Hey, I've got sons. I don't know how to teach my sons how to be men. And yeah. it's, look, it, it's not perfect. It's messy. It doesn't always work out perfectly, but man, there are some incredible, beautiful examples in our church family where married men, single men have stepped in to mm -hmm. some of those roles and been like a surrogate dad or like a surrogate big brother for some of these young men growing up in families of single moms and, and vice versa. If it was a single dad and I would love to see women as sisters, as aunts and uncles stepping in and filling some of those roles. So that's actually one of the ways um, that the church can be a really beautiful thing. Um, whatever God designed it the way he designed it and where there are holes, where there are gaps, 
God's grace is sufficient to fill those. Now it may not be perfect. So I know, I know we had one other question where a, a lady texted in and said, Hey, I'm a single mom providing foster parenting services for kids. Am I failing them in some way? Because I can't bring the male picture to that. And it's like, man, that's such a beautiful and hard question at some level. First, I just want to say, no, you're doing an incredible thing that mm-hmm. represents Jesus's agape love. You're sacrificing and serving and the kids are better off with you. But at another level, yes, there is an inborn deficit, a gap there. And if you're, if until and unless you're married, then the other option to fill that is to recruit men, recruit men from your life group, recruit brothers, recruit single men, married men and say, Hey, can you be bit not a full not the fullness of but a bit of the picture of god as father filling that gap help them see what beautiful masculinity can look like and so all of that can get messy and we can talk a lot just Mm -hmm. about that one Mm -hmm. idea um but when there are gaps when the family breakdown happens in any way shape or form as men and women who see each other see the good rely on each other we want to fill those gaps wherever we can in a gracious and loving way no doubt let's get to the next question john i'll let you hit this one men and women being equal how do we address and deal with the wage gap as christians how do we deal with this so the popular argument i tend to hear is men and women equal therefore they should get paid equally like that just seems like a yeah why not well that that seems silly so obviously economically jobs are sexist is generally the argument i hear yeah, and therefore companies are sexist, and it's all because of the historical patriarchy. And the, the stat that I hear most often is that women get paid 70 cents on the dollar, something like that. Simply, wherever you have the ability to affect the wage gap, you should. So if you run a company, if you employ people, if you're involved in hiring for your company, do everything you can to eliminate any sense of sinful, unholy, Wage gap. Yeah, of course. Also, I think when you do some research on some of the stats, it's a multivariable equation with some nuance. And this is just something that our culture doesn't have a lot of room for. And it's you can go either way with it. Because you can say, oh yeah, so it's multivariable and it's complicated and it's nuanced, so I don't want to deal with the issue at all. That's not what I'm arguing for. But I do think we end up, I think books like Proverbs and the wisdom of God necessitates have a faithful and honest conversation where you consider what are like, uh, so as you do some research on this, I think what you'll find is men and women in many ways are drawn towards different types of jobs. Men and women, because of some of their observable differences, uh, are drawn towards jobs that emphasize different skills and different mentalities. And that, I'm not saying that explains everything, but that does explain some of the difference. If certain jobs pay better and certain jobs pay worse and women happen to be drawn towards more of the jobs that pay worse, that's going to affect the overall stats at the end of the day. Then you get this weird situation now where because of that, you have certain professions that are more male dominated and certain professions that are more female dominated. Wherever we are in any of those professions, we as Christians, we are emphasizing the equality of men and women with observable differences. That's what we're that's our team. That's we're our starting that point. Team. That's yeah. our starting point no matter where we are. And we want to fight for equality wherever we can. But we also just don't want to fall for reductionistic arguments that 
don't really explain the data very well and jump on scapegoat explanations as if the, the, the problems are really simple. So here's where I was going earlier. Some of these professions, the profession ends up more, let's say a profession ends up more female dominated. Well, then men potentially are less comfortable in that environment and or less drawn to it because it doesn't appear like a place that men. So is that a problem that needs to be solved? Maybe. I think for all of us, it's have the confidence to know who you are as God's image bearer, as a redeemed one whose identity is first and foremost found in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. You're in Christ. And now be faithful to what he's called you to. And wherever you are, fight for equality where you can, but don't make it a bigger issue than it necessarily is. Yeah. Uh, one more thing, just, I know we got to keep moving. One of the things that they find in studies about the wage gap is that women by and large self-reported reported by others tend to score higher on agreeableness than men. Now that comes to bear in something like contract negotiation. So by and large men either enjoy or are not as bothered by the nature of contract negotiation as women are. So sometimes that affects pay at the end of the day because the person who enjoys the contract negotiation and goes in really aggressively and doesn't care if they come off agreeable or not oftentimes ends up getting paid more at the end of the day is that right is that how it should work man those are all fine questions to debate but it is just an interesting variable so practically speaking as one of your pastors women if you are have a professional career i would recommend you get some coaching and some training about contract negotiation Knowing yourself, knowing whether you're, maybe you know, hey, I lean really agreeable and contract negotiations really hard for me. Maybe you get someone to help you with the process or you get some training to do really well in that process. So that's like a personal way that you can try to push back on this system that exists, whether or not it's right, fair, perfectly utopian, how it should be. Sure. Will contract negotiation exist in heaven? Probably not. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know, but uh, I would just say at a practical level, Push into it. Yeah. Try to grow up anything you can in yourself for your own professional development. John, how does the Bible talk about genders when it comes to intersex situations being born with both genitals and chromosomal abnormalities? Thanks. They say. I just appreciate the thanks. I like I, it's nice. I really appreciate it's the, nice. the uh, positive vibes and attitude being thrown our way. So, John, if God created male and female, both genders, it's either this or it's that. So, if someone is neither this or that, doesn't that just totally break the argument? It, it sure doesn't, Jake. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, if you go listen to week eight of the series, um, where we talked very specifically about transgender issues, which are different than, but connected to intersex issues. Um, one of the things that, that we're going to land on pretty hard is the exception to the rule doesn't break the rule. It actually proves the rule. What we mean by that is if there is no rule, we don't even know why intersex is an exception to the rule, but there is a rule. That, that applies to 99 plus percent of every human ever born on the face of planet earth. And depending on the research, depending on what you study, the numbers for percentages of people who have any amount of chromosomal or uh, physical abnormality in the, in the realm of intersex, um, it's, it's very low. It's very, very low. Now, am I saying, so because it's a small minority, those people don't matter. Of course not. They matter. 
They matter. They're made in God's image with whatever amount of physical normality or abnormality. This is the same argument that Christians have historically always made for people with uh, any kind of abnormality. So uh, thinking about things like physical or mental disability, man, Christians love and we see the value and the, the beauty and the dignity of people with Down syndrome, people with any handicap, any disability, still made in God's image to be valued, to be loved by him, by us. Um, now the question becomes, how does that change how we think about this stuff and how we think about like policy making? And it's like, well, once again, are you in a position to affect policy? If you are cool, think about that really wisely and prayerfully. But you know, in week eight, I, I love that we went to Matthew 19, where Jesus talks about these kind of three different reasons why someone might be a eunuch. You know, they could be born that way. They could have, someone else could have made them a eunuch. Uh, or they could have chosen to make themselves a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. It's not exactly one-to-one -one between eunuchs and people who are born intersex. Um, but I do think it, it gives us some helpful categories for how to think about some of this stuff. And the, the big ideas here are the exceptions to the rule don't break the rule. They confirm the rule. And then secondly, as Christians, as the kingdom of God, as the church, whoever you are, with whatever you bring to the table... God sees you. God knows you. You have a place in the family of God. But no, we don't necessarily need to change everything about how we build a society and a culture based on rare exceptions. Yeah. And as a resource, we're going to go ahead and throw that sermon link into the show notes so you can hear that more. All right. Our last question for this one. In terms of gender and sexuality, if someone lives in sin their entire life, does accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior at the last minute make a difference? Does it make a difference if they make that decision but still don't find that their sexuality was a sin worth repenting of? There's a few trails we could go on with this one. So I, I think this is kind of loaded. And so backing up, how does someone become a Christian? Someone becomes a Christian by placing their faith in Jesus. What we mean by faith is a belief and way of life. The word faith in the New Testament is pistis, and there is, I think, a very good arguments for a proper way to translate pistis uh, can be faith or even allegiance and loyalty. And I like that because it brings to mind allegiance, loyalty to Jesus doesn't just mean, yeah, I agree with the facts. Awesome. So I'm good to go. And I think... Uh, I'm speaking for myself, but growing up in a very seeker-sensitive, mega-church sort of background, we can often boil down faith into this reductionistic, just assent to the facts, and you're good to go. So as far as your lifestyle, well, hey, do you agree to, with the facts? All right, then you're good. Um, but I like this idea of allegiance loyalty because it does emphasize once you do acknowledge Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, he has conquered death, inviting you into new life, then it does sort of encapsulate like now your call is to follow him with every part of your being. And so the Lord and Savior even dichotomy, I think is not a helpful thing. By that, I mean, it's to like... separate those two is not a healthy move to make. And by that, I mean, it's like, well, did you accept him as your Savior or your Lord? Or did you do both? And... 
I don't think that's helpful or necessarily biblical because the argument is, can you accept Jesus? Can you assent to the beliefs uh, and he is your savior without necessarily following him, which is him being Lord? And I don't think you can splice it one or the I mean, other. Does that even bring passages to mind about like even the even the demons believe and shudder? They know who mm-hmm. Jesus is. They believe who he is, but they don't. There's no allegiance. There's no bowing. There's no submission. There's no repentance. We don't want to. We're not. We're certainly not trying to encourage people to live like that. Right. Yeah. And I think someone could say, uh, "What about the thief on the cross?" I, I feel like the thief on the cross gets thrown into every like. Well, what about what He's about him? Only example that matters, Jake. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'd say, yeah, that is, that is an exception. That is not the norm. And the norm is when someone puts their faith in Jesus, the call is now to repent. Jesus is opening statements in Matthew four, repent, believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So even Jesus acknowledges not just a assent to the facts, but now follow your life. It's not just cognitive agreement with certain Correct. theological statements. Correct. Uh, That's a very long way to get to what is, I think, underneath the question. So what saves you? Faith saves you. Belief, allegiance, loyalty to Jesus. So if someone's on their deathbed and trusts Jesus for the rest of their life following, whether that means moments before their death or weeks before their death, I, I believe God will save them for sure. Now, what does your life look like once you have done that? Once you, uh, place your faith in Jesus, well, then it looks like allegiance, loyalty, following after. Now, there's that second part of the question. What if they don't find their sexuality worth repenting of? I think that gets really, really dicey, and we're trying to like find the one exception or something. And I would ask, maybe, well, why, did not, why did they not think that was worth repenting of? I would just... <laughs> so we're... We're describing like this super, super hypothetical. Someone's like seconds away before death. They place their faith in Jesus. But as they're dying, they're like, but I'm not going to repent of this. See you later. What happens to that person? I think that's just a very hypothetical question because I I would have questions to ask. Like, well, if it was just seconds before, I would just want to know, like, why did they not think that? Was someone coaching them up, helping them show the biblical sexual ethics. You were in the hospital room with that person in that situation. You'd be like, don't unplug the machine yet. We got to nail something. We got to get to this. Wait, wait, wait. No. And we're going to get to this in future episodes. But even as I think about the biblical sexual ethic and where we rank that in terms of what are the theological hills to die on. um, Yeah, we'll suss this all out in an upcoming episode, but I think there are, when it comes to close-handed beliefs, biblical convictions, within the close-handed umbrella, there are things that we die for and there's stuff that we divide for. And stuff that we die for is theological, categorical, number one, most important, what makes you a Christian? And I think historic church, what the Bible says, faith in Jesus, um, believing Jesus is God, fully man, all the stuff of like the creeds, early church, Bible, all of that. And then second, what is the stuff that we divide for, which we're not saying necessarily is a make or break as far as are you a Christian, but we are saying when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to your discipleship, these are pretty critical issues that we need to 
be on the same page with, with what Jesus has to say about it. And I think biblical sexual ethic or even biblical authority perhaps falls under those where it's like, I'm not saying yes or no to, if you deny these, then, you know, you're probably not really a Christian, but I would say I have a lot, a lot of questions. If you look at all the biblical data and say, nah. Yeah. Even just questions about like, are you submitting to the lordship and authority of Jesus in your life and his word in your life? Or are you retaining lordship? And then there's this issue of like, well, everyone at some level has certain areas of their life where they have not fully repented of every (laughs) instance of lordship. And Mm -hmm. it's like, I'm still trying to control certain things in my life. Some of them I'm blind to. That's why I need community and I need God's word to keep showing me and keep exposing areas of sin and self-control that I need to repent of. So it's your salvation is not based on your perfect repentance, but fighting on a massive area of identity development and I'm not even willing to consider. I'm not, it's like, well, I, I, like you said, I have some questions. Yeah. I don't, it doesn't seem like the faithful response that the God spirit works in someone's heart when they are responding to the grace of Jesus. I'm not going to necessarily come hard one way or the other on this person's hypothetical person's existence in the afterlife. That's right. Uh, even just, you mentioned earlier the thief on the cross. And so just pulling it up real quick, you know, we're in Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hang railed at him saying, are you not the Christ save yourself and us? But the other rebuked him saying, do not, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So it's really easy to just emphasize, well, that happened right before he died. So that's all it takes. But it's like, there is a lot actually in the textual data here. If you've got two criminals, two wicked people guilty of both sin in their life and breaking the law such that they are deemed worthy of a criminal's death. They're, they're receiving execution. And one of them, even facing his own death, is railing against God, railing against the Son of God and saying, I thought you were the Messiah. Save me. Save us. Like, he's, he, one, he's angry. <laughs> There's not a heart of humility and re- receiving grace. He's, uh, he wants to use God. He wants to use Jesus. Get me off this cross. That's all he cares about. The other guy is going, is he's facing his death and he's going, man, I deserve this. I actually deserve the, the consequences that I'm receiving. I deserve that. Jesus, remember me. Like my only hope is that God is a God of grace. Like it's the the heart posture in these two people is vastly different. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just about timing but it's about evidence of someone has come to see with humility. I cannot save myself. I am guilty of sin. I am deserving of death. I'm deserving of punishment. I'm deserving of God's wrath. Jesus has taken that for me. And he's now Lord and savior of my life. My submission is to him. He is my authority. My allegiance is to him. Whatever he says goes in my life. I'd give up anything to worship him. Not just to get off the cross I deserve or the, I'm, the, the circumstances I'm currently dealing with, but I, I've actually had a heart change, a mind change. I've actually repented and I see who God is and I see myself rightly. And yeah, he's king. He gets, he gets to dictate the terms of how my life and our relationship works moving forward. Yeah. 
And that's where eternal life, life to the fullest is, is following him, not just in the next life, but in this life. And that's not something to put off, that there is life to the fullest now, you know, like why wait, like Jesus is offering us eternal life here and now with him. And the temporary fun of whatever we're chasing after outside of him is not worth it. It's it's a bad trade. You're making a bad trade. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I think, a good one to end on. Again, we have resources in the show notes, and tune in next time. Bye. Bye.